Business Power Hour. A warm welcome to the Biz News Power Hour today. It's Tuesday, the 25th of January. I'm Alec Hogg in studio with me here in Johannesburg, Michael Apple, and in our virtual studio, our colleagues in Cape Town, Justin Rowe Roberts and Nadia Swart. Got a nice spread of information and news and interviews for you tonight. Uh, I spoke a little earlier with Erin Richards, advocate Erin Richards, uh, a real feisty, very bright advocate or legal eagle, I suppose you could say, who has been spending enormous amount of time going through the Zondo Commission report, reading all of the transcripts of the uh, witnesses, reading the affidavits, and uh, she unpacks in gory detail what happened with Bain. I think that is an interview that you simply cannot miss. Another one not missable, which is on our show tonight, is the one you did, Justin, with Sean Pesh about the crazy uh, volatility on the stock markets of the United States last night, where at one point they were down about 5% but ended up in the green. Now, Sean says this is only the start of things to come. Correct, Alec. During these times of irrational market behavior, the NASDAQ composite down at one stage 5%, turned into the green. It's great to sit back, relax, and get some calm from a rational mind that is Sean Pesh, although he is concerned about market behavior at the moment and things to come. It's a really good interview, and as is the one that you did, Michael, yesterday on the, uh, sorry, uh, today on the Julius Malema attack on illegal immigrants. That's right, Alex. So the man I spoke to about this this whole local versus foreign employment ratio is a man with yellow beard. Rand, uh, Randolph Jorberg, and he spoke to me out of Germany. He's no stranger to the uh, hospitality industry, and he uh, ran a very successful um, beer house uh, in Four Ways, Johannesburg, and has had to deal with the problems that come with uh, having a high staff turnover. You're not sure who's uh, coming to apply for jobs. You're looking at work visas. Are they for real? Are they photocopies? Are they fake? You're trying to make sure that you employ as many locals as possible. It's not always possible. So the uh, ins and outs of the hospitality industry as the EFF marched to the doors of a restaurant in Midrand and said, open your books. We want to see how many people you have here. Who's local? Who's foreign? We want a 60-40 split and you're going to do it. On whose authority? We don't know. Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, Dario Swat, as uh, mentioned earlier, is standing by with today's news headlines, Nadja. Shell's South African partner dismissed fears that seismic surveys for offshore oil and gas could endanger marine life, calling it poppycock, while warning that halting the process could leave the country entirely dependent on crude imports. There's no evidence that seismic testing has had any biologically significant impact on any marine populations in areas in which surveys have been conducted anywhere in the world, Hoskin Consolidated Investments said in an open letter published on its website. 
Some people may believe that the most important social contribution they can make is to inhibit oil exploration in South Africa, but their success will not end our demand for oil, HCI said. It will simply leave us completely dependent on importing it at huge cost to our foreign reserves. And a special investigating unit report into the state's spending on its response to the COVID-19 pandemic was made public on Tuesday. President Ramaphosa's office announced he had authorised that the final report on the SIU's probe into more than 5,400 government contracts be made available. The unit investigated 5,467 contracts valued at 14.3 billion rand, awarded to over 3,000 service providers. Investigations linked to over 4,500 contracts have been finalised, with just over 2,800 of those agreements found to have been irregular. This amounted to 62% of the finalised investigations being deemed irregular. The SIU identified assets and money totaling 551.5 million rand that needed to be recovered on the basis of its probes. So far, assets and money totaling just over 34 million rand have been recovered. And South African scientists and medical experts are adding their voices to the call for the government to end the country's national state of disaster and lockdown regulations, saying that the world is entering a new phase of dealing with the COVID-19 virus and that being on a permanent code red is no longer effective. In an op-ed addressing the issue, the scientists said that the state of disaster has allowed politicians to act in an irrational and unscientific way without any accountability or transparency and that it was time that this came to an end. Justin, back to you for the market report. The JSU All Share Index was up at 72,600. In the price action, it's all about the mining and oil counters this Tuesday. Anglos, Northam, Sabanya, and the gift that keeps on giving, Sassel, all well up. On the downside, it's relatively limited, with Naspers and Process, the two heavyweights, being a drag on index performance today. In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies to 15 rand 32 cents to the dollar, 20 rand and 62 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 27 cents to the euro. Gold is flat at $1,838 an ounce. Kruger rand will cost you around 29,500 rand. Brent crude is slightly lower at $86.30 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 560,000 rand. In the financial news, cement producer PPC, which was on the brink of financial collapse about 18 months ago, has been the subject of substantial insider selling. Insiders sell shares for many reasons, and it shouldn't necessarily be seen as a negative sign. However, given the enormity of the transactions in this case, there should be some concern. First, Chief Executive Roland van Vanen sold half of his stake in the business worth 25 million rand. The reasoning was to rebalance his investment portfolio which makes sense given the rally in PPC's share price over the last 12 months. Diversification is the only free lunch in investing, and no one wants to have all their eggs in one basket. Value Capital Partners, activist investors with concentrated positions in a limited number of JSE-listed counters, sold over 230 million rand in shares last week. That accounts for 3.1% of the business at its current market value. Value Capital Partners has been a consistent buyer and still owns more than 13% of the business, worth around 1 billion rand, so this could be seen as simple profit-taking. Still, too big insider selling may be an indication the share price is at or above fair value. This daily market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Tuesday, January 25th, and this is your FT News Briefing. 
stock markets yesterday, they swooned, they tumbled, they nosedived, whatever word you want to use, they were down. But then? The dip was bought. I do not think, however, that the fun is probably over in markets. We'll talk about this market movement with Rob Armstrong. He writes our daily unhedged newsletter. We'll also look at the latest hurdle for connected fitness company Peloton. And we'll go to the Persian Gulf to find out more about rebels in Yemen taking their fight into the United Arab Emirates. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. So U.S. stocks ended yesterday higher, but it was after one hell of a ride. At one point, the Nasdaq was down as much as 4%, and the S&P 500 was at one point down 10% from its high. That's technical correction territory. But it wasn't just U.S. stocks. All over the globe, from the FTSE to the Hang Seng, stocks took a beating. And this comes as the Federal Reserve is set to meet this week to talk about unwinding its pandemic stimulus that pumped up stock prices. So I'm joined now by Rob Armstrong. He's our U.S. financial commentator. Hey, Rob. Hey, how are you? Doing well. So um, yesterday's markets, how would you describe the activity that we saw? It was pretty wild. You know, we had a pretty rough week last week. And indeed, it's been a pretty rough January, especially for what we call growth stocks, long shots, high risk stuff, high volatility stuff has been selling off. And it looked like in the morning, yesterday, that that sell-off in, as it were, the dodgier edges of the market was really starting to spread into the core of the market, into bigger, more staid kind of blue chippy names. But then in the afternoon, we had a very strong rally. It was an extremely volatile day, uh, but the dip was bought. Uh, I do not think, however, that the fun is probably over in markets. Yeah. And that brings us to the why. You know, why did we see what we saw yesterday? I have a feeling that you're going to say something about the Fed. Well, the Fed is is part of the background here, but I think it's always important to remember markets are creatures of momentum and emotion. And those two things are often very hard to tell apart. So there is, especially on in very volatile or even panicked periods, there doesn't have to be a why. That said, we have a very long bull market in the past. We have very high equity valuations. We are heading into a Federal Reserve policy tightening cycle. That means both probably higher rates and the shrinking of the Fed balance sheet. And growth and demand have been excellent, but are maybe now looking a shade worse. Those are the, as it were, contextual factors. But the tricky thing about markets is all of those things could be true and no sell-off, and it would still make a good amount of sense. So, Rob, I know you were on the phone a lot yesterday talking to traders and investors and analysts to you know, get a sense of what they were thinking. What did they tell you? A lot of people that I spoke to pointed out the relative calm elsewhere in larger markets. In other words, that credit markets were calmer, you know, or that sort of asset-backed securities. It's like this is a still a reasonably concentrated sell-off in equities rather than a general panicked flight from risk. They, they always say in a real crisis, everything correlates. 
if you look at any chart of any price in the world in 2001, you know, they all collapsed at once synchronously, as it were. And that's not happening right now, which is a good thing. Rob Armstrong is the FT's U.S. financial commentator. You can subscribe to his daily newsletter on Hedged. We'll have the link in the show notes. Thanks, Rob. My pleasure. The connected fitness company Peloton has watched its shares careen down a steep and bumpy trail. And now it's crashed into an activist investor who wants to oust Peloton's chief executive and explore selling the company. To talk more about this, I've got our San Francisco correspondent, Patrick McGee, on the line. Hey, Patrick. Hi, Mark. So to remind listeners who aren't you know, spinning on their Peloton bikes. This was the company that exploded during the pandemic. Gyms closed and it seemed like everyone wanted Pelotons and other gear so they could work out from home. What has happened since then? Yeah, for quarter after quarter, the likes of yours truly was, was writing that, you know, hey, Peloton really has to respond to this demand, um, you know, and really get bikes to people more quickly. And Peloton sort of had this lagged reaction where it took them a while. And then when they finally made big moves to do it, essentially, they built up this big inventory and the market turned. The vaccine came out, more competition in its space emerged. And the result was that they ended up with all this inventory and uh, less of a market to sell it to. And then CNBC reported that they had actually frozen production for several products in the coming months, and that caused its shares to fall another 25%. Peloton, I should point out, basically called the story erroneous. To be fair, Peloton's in this quiet period where maybe they can't tell us the full details, but it sounded like they're absolutely freezing some production, but just maybe not to the extent that was, that was mentioned in the article. Sure. So uh, if that wasn't bad enough, now we have this activist investor on the scene, Blackwell's Capital. It owns less than 5% of the company, but it's accusing Peloton's co-founder, John Foley, of losing $40 billion in shareholders' wealth and accuses him of mismanagement and misleading investors and hiring his wife as an executive. You know, is this all true, Patrick? The one point I would point out is, is I don't think the hiring his wife has any merit. John and his wife, Jill, basically came up with this company on their own, right, back in like 2012 as an idea. And she's been in charge of the apparel group within Peloton since 2014. Uh, but everything else, I mean, you look, Peloton was worth almost $50 billion at the height. And the height was basically 12 months ago to the day. So it's almost like stock market wise, they've given away all the gains of a pandemic. And you think of what a pandemic did. It closed down all the gyms and sort of gave Peloton a sort of environment that, that they couldn't have sort of authored better themselves. I guess the question I have for you is, how influential is Blackwell's, uh, you know, the, the activist investor making these claims and how likely that it's going to get what it wants? Or is this just a lot of bluster? I'm in the bluster camp for the key reason that Peloton is one of these tech companies that has a dual share structure. And so John Foley, the founder, and others actually have these class B shares. And every one of them is worth 20 times that of an ordinary share, which means that shareholders basically have no say whatsoever. Just to zoom out a little bit, you know, does Peloton's decline tell us anything more widely about the survival of the connected fitness industry? Or is this an isolated scenario? The growth that was seen during the worst time of COVID had some investors convinced that, oh my God, this company can really grow at these crazy rates. Uh, and John Foley's the CEO of Peloton. His main message was, we're not a COVID story, that this is just brought forward connected fitness, but we really think that this is the future. 
And I would say that's the main question that's really in flux. You know, was Peloton just a COVID story or did basically COVID serve as a sort of huge advertisement for connected fitness and the growth rates that we saw during COVID are what we're going to see the next few years? Investors have very much lost faith in that thesis, frankly. I don't know that it's wrong, but that's what they've lost faith in. Patrick McGee is our San Francisco correspondent. He also wrote a killer article about connected fitness in uh, the FT Weekend You should check it out. We'll have a link to it in our show notes. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks, Mark. The civil war in Yemen is rippling out. Yesterday, the United Arab Emirates said it had intercepted ballistic missiles fired by Houthi rebels from Yemen at the UAE capital of Abu Dhabi. This comes a week after another more deadly attack on the city. The FT Simeon Kerr describes this latest assault as unsettling, but not a major concern. But at the same time, the authorities here will know that if this were to become a regular event, it would become a lot more problematic for businesses. People would potentially think twice about investing here in property, which is a big sector. And the big concern, especially in Dubai, would be what impact might it have on tourism and aviation if this were to become more regular. Now, the reason Houthi rebels are attacking the UAE is because it's part of the Saudi-led coalition against the Houthi rebels. And the coalition has been making inroads against the rebel advances. Just in the last month or so, UAE allied forces joined the battle with the government against the Houthis and started to make progress. And it seems that the fact that their allies were proving decisive in moving against the Houthis, that seems to have triggered the Houthi response to take the battle into the heartland of the UAE onto UAE soil. So can the UAE defend itself against these attacks? Well, the UAE has fantastic technology and weaponry, and that is proving to be successful so far in repelling most of this stuff. That's going to be the main strategy. The politics of Yemen and the actions that its allies take in the theatre in Yemen itself is also going to be important. And not least, relations with Iran. The Iranians are allied with the Houthis. The UAE calculation would be one that they thought that if there were military gains on the ground, that would help persuade the Houthis to come to the negotiating table and try with international and UN support to hammer out a political settlement, which is absolutely vital to end what is a catastrophic humanitarian disaster. It's hard to see what will persuade them to the negotiating table without perhaps some kind of Iranian cajoling. Simeon Curry is the FT's Gulf business correspondent. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT news briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Sean Pesh, Rand Moore, fund management founder and value-focused fund manager that is probably sleeping a lot better than a host of asset managers around the world right now. Sean, wow, what a start to the year. I know we touched base a week ago, but so much has happened since. Let's start with what happened last night in the U.S. I'm talking all the major U.S. indices. That's the S&P 500, Dow Jones, and specifically the NASDAQ. Sharp downturns followed by vicious reversals. What's happening out there at the moment? Justin, yes, it was um, certainly a lot has changed in the in a week and uh, a sharp reversal, very sharp. You know, the Dow 
I gather, got to one of the most oversold, a uh, seven-day plunge, uh, most oversold reading in, in two years. And so, you know, it's like a flock of starlings when they turn, when one turns left, a whole lot of them do so. So, so really, yeah, big bounce, um, maybe a little bit of a follow through. Uh, is this over now? Is the pain behind us and we're going to move forward? I don't think so. I think it's just the start, but that's my view. Sure. And there's all this talk about inflation, interest rate hikes, etc. But is this just really a case of valuation starting to matter? I was getting concerned that my university and CFA notes were lying to me with regards to valuation the last few years. Absolutely, Justin. I think that's exactly what the problem is. And I think the you know, we've had the wind blowing in one direction for a long time now, what's it, 13, 14 years. Um, and so everybody is on the same side of the trade. I kind of said this last week, but but now what's happened is you started to get the pain coming in. And, and you know, they've done psychological studies that they found uh, the the investors try and resist pain. You know, they, they, they dislike pain versus like pleasure two to one. And you've got, you know, hedge funds are down double digits. You know, the, the average... Goldman Sachs, uh, the average investor is down 11% of the Goldman Sachs. ARK is down 22. It's down 53 from the highs. Um, some of the most popular funds and, you know, your clients, uh, your, your, your listeners, go and have a look at, at the latest price data of some of their funds. You'll find that many of the most popular funds have given up half of last year's gains in 15 days. So we're now starting to get to the psychological part of the game which is that psychology is important and pain is coming in and some people are just, you know, won't be able to take the pain. We can all self-medicate, but there's a reason you pay doctors and that's for when things get tough and, and, and vitamins no longer just work. So, so I think that's what's going on. And I think an important point, and I haven't seen a lot written about it, but last Friday was options expiry. And there was rumored to be about $1.3 trillion of open interest expiring. Um, and retail investors have have made a lot of money from these options because you'll take your mind back to AMC and those stocks uh, a couple of years ago. You know, it was easy. You buy some call options in Tesla. Tesla just keeps going up. Uh, you sell them. You make a lot of money. You throw, put the money back on red at the casino table, buy more call options. All of a sudden, what happened? The options expired worthless. And so investors have lost a lot of money. Um, and, and I think if you look at it, everybody's in tech, everyone's in passives, the act passes in tech, the actives in tech, retail is in tech. Um, and, uh, and now all of a sudden tech's not working because of interest rates. And, and what I would say is we've seen interest rates pivot. We have seen growth and value pivot. I mean, you compare the, the value, you know, we're up this year. Uh, you, you see that the pivot has been quite sharp. How many investors have pivoted their portfolios or they're in the same portfolios last year? And so that's the problem. Everybody's still stuck in the old, uh, you know, listening to the old music and the mood and the beat has moved on. Sean, let's stay on the topic of behavioral finance or behavioral economics, but forget the institutions for a second. Let's talk the host of retail investors that came into the market post, post the COVID crash in 2020 and simply have unrealistically high return expectations. The market doesn't go up 20% every year, despite it doing so the last few years. Long-term average return on equities on the S&P 500 is around 7 to 8%. I stand to be corrected, but it's somewhere in that ballpark. From a behavioral economics perspective, do you think these new retail investors that have only experienced the good times are going to be able to handle this? No, I don't. And I think you're absolutely right. I think behavioral, look, behavioral finance is a, 
is a great interest of mine. And if anybody wants to read a good book, James Montier's the guy. Um, but um, so, so I think what what's also quite interesting is think of another, you know, another pursuit in the world where you can play against the best in the business, the best in the world. You know, all these retail investors are out there playing against Paul Tudor Jones. They're playing against, you know, Stanley Druckenmiller and Jim Simons and all these hedge funds and the you know fund managers out there. You're playing against the best in the business. We can't go play tennis against Roger Federer, and if we did, we get beaten. Um, so, so I think that's what's going on out there. It's been really easy, and people have thought, well, this is easy. I buy a few of the go-go tech stocks based on what I see on Twitter. Markets go up. You know, I buy some passives, goes up. Who needs fund managers? Um, and of course, the problem is it's, it has been in the one, one direction and it's fine to perform in line with the market when the market's rising. But who on earth wants to perform in line with the market when the market's falling? And so that's where I think it's going to be very interesting, because now what's going to happen is you're going to, you know, you're going to see the, the behavioral things. The market's going to bounce. Some other people are going to go, right, this is the bottom we're in. They jump in. Uh, then it turns down again. They've got double the pain. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be messy. Let's talk inflation and the imminent interest rate hike cycle we're going to see. I follow Mohammed Al Arian, president of Queen College and economic advisor to Allianz very closely. He's been very critical of Fed Jerome Powell. He says that the Fed is playing catch up and the probability of a policy error at this point is very high. What does he mean by that? I think he's right. I mean, I uh, I did a LinkedIn post you know, a while ago, um, in fact, and referred to it in one the other day where I looked at the, I read the Fed minutes, I think it was June last year. And the Fed basically said, we have no template. You know, everybody looks to the Fed and thinks they've got the answer, but we haven't seen inflation for nearly 40 years. And there are very few economists, career economists, who have who are still in the game, having been around that long. One of the few guys who's been around that long is uh, Jeremy Grantham. And what did he say the other day? He said the markets are going to fall 50%. You know, so when somebody like that who's seen many bubbles burst and uh, many Fed missteps says something like that, I think people should sit up and and listen. And the problem is. You know, um, it's it's yeah, it would be far better if they'd stopped the rot. But inflation hasn't stopped rising yet. I mean, the oil price is up this year, and that's still got to feed through to numbers. And in fact, uh, I was reading Procter and Gamble's uh, comment the other day. It's only starting to now feed into utilities, you know, because the utilities have had fixed gas prices and fixed coal prices, and those are now starting to roll. And so now you're starting to see inflation at uh, the company level, and that's going to get still get passed on to consumers. So we're not at the end of inflation. You know, we maybe halfway through. Who knows? Um, but uh, but but that's that's probably the problem. Is that there's because we don't know about this because we haven't seen in forty years. The likelihood of an error is high. Sean, as a South African, I fall into this trap. I follow the JSE very closely, and then naturally the US indices. When the US sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. But you, as a UK-based fund manager, how is the London Stock Exchange held up so far this year? Well, to be honest, I actually don't follow just the London Stock Exchange either. I follow Europe. Um, I follow sort of more regional. You know, I just don't. We've got we we overweight the UK. We massively overweight Europe. I mean, we only have thirty five percent of our portfolio. In fact, less than thirty five percent of our portfolio in the US. Benchmark is seventy, and we have uh, more in Europe than we have in the US. And benchmark in Europe is about twenty. So, um, so Europe has actually been holding up relatively well relatively well and so that's quite encouraging actually and if you look at if you look at the makeup of and what's the biggest materials company in the us i think it's i think it's alcoa there's not a lot if you want to hedge inflation 
well, what are you going to buy? You're going to buy a few oil companies and maybe one or two materials companies. Whereas over here, we've got Glencore and Anglo-American and Rio Tinto, and you've got Bayer, and you've got all these big um, big materials companies in Europe. And so actually, if you want to hedge against inflation, maybe Europe's not a bad place to look. Sean, we're one month into the calendar year, and Sean, Byron, Wien, Pesh, top 10 market surprises are turning out to be lessons of less of a surprise than they were on the 8th of December, 2021. Are you expecting much of the same going forward that we've seen this first calendar month of the year? Justin, you're ahead of me because I haven't actually looked at those uh, in some time. I know that, um, yeah, I mean, I think I did say value would would win and uh, yeah, we're moving in the right direction. Who knows? It's an early start, but at least we're moving in the right direction. Erin Richards, good to have you. Advocate, Erin Richards. Do you like being called advocate? Oh, Alec, no, just go with Erin, please. It's, it's, <laughs> I have the same discussion with, with my clients sometimes. Do you want to be called counsel? Do you want to be called advocate? No, it's a job description. It's not a title. So Erin's uh, fine. Here we call you Erin, but uh, I do know some businessmen like being called advocate. They feel that it adds uh, maybe a little prestige to an otherwise, for some people, very grubby world, which... You've been doing a lot of looking into a very grabby part of business and the stuff that's coming out of the Zondo Commission. We'll focus this week on Bain. I'm telling my story. I met uh, the chairman of Bain, who's based in London. Her name is Orit Gadish, mm. and a, a very striking human being. Uh, a long black hair, very strong face. I looked her up afterwards, summer cum laude, Harvard, etc. That's when I, prestige for you. That's prestige. So I asked her what she was going to be doing about Bain's naughtiness in South Africa. And she said, we will definitely do the right thing. This was three years ago. It doesn't appear as though what's come out in the Zondo Commission and their reaction to it uh, is confirming that she was telling the truth. Look, my honest reaction to that is, is I don't know how they could possibly do the right thing if they refuse to acknowledge right from the out that anything has actually happened. Bain's position, as I recall it, since 2018, since after the Nugent Commission, has been deny, deny, deny. At best, they've issued some cockamamie version of a half apology that basically says they were an unwitting participant. So if you're not even willing to admit that there is a fundamental rot within the core of your organization, how on earth um, are you going to fix it? And Bain's a big company, big multinational based in Boston, consulting for big money to many companies around the world. You might have thought that they would have been better advised on this. I don't know. I mean, I listened to an interview with with Lord Hayne the other day, and and he issued great advice, which is his advice to Bain would be, uh, if you're in a hole, stop digging. And that is advice that apparently they they're not they're not taking, but it it does seem to me increasingly as though we can all start drawing the assumption that Bain is after the money that's that's being spent by governments globally, and that's 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 the conclusion that I'm landing up at at any rate. How much of the transcripts on the whole Bain saga before we get to what Judge Zondo said in part one of his report? How much of that kind of how to make the sausage have you been investigating or, or read through? Yeah. So, Alec, I've currently been through just over about three quarters of the of, of the transcripts. It's over 57,000 pages. I've been reading and reading and reading for, for months. Um, I'm sure you've seen the report that's come out is um, over 800 pages. 
there is a lot for those of us who are who are really really interested in it. But this report has done a very good job of actually summarising specifically around the Bain issue, what transpired, and it's done so in very damning terms. What's the executive summary of the summary? Well, the core issue is that if we look back to about two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, a couple of years after that. SARS really was an exemplary institution. I mean, it was globally ranked as one of the foremost uh, tax administration authorities in the world. And then suddenly, with Tom Moyane's appointment, within a few months of that in 2014-2015, a wrecking ball basically crashes through SARS and decimates the institution. Now, the summary of the summary, as far as Bain is concerned, what they're contending with, is the allegation that actually the collapse of SARS was not just about political interference or maladministration. It was actually primarily coordinated and planned many years in advance by Bain, who it looks like they had a concerted plan to destroy that institution. And that's what we're dealing with here. I recall talking to some of my contacts at SARS while all all of this was going on, and some of the last few good guys, Pravin Gordon appointments, who'd, who were still there. And they were saying at that stage there were more than 100 executives that had just been taken out. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's extraordinary. Well, that's exactly what happened. And I think that that bears testament to the amount of planning that was done on Bain's part, why it actually took them two, two and a half years before that plan to destroy SARS was executed. And there was a plan. I'm quite happy to speak factually about that because to me, the evidence that's presented in this report is absolutely overwhelming. The speed at which this was executed, to me, bears, bears witness to that, to that planning. The Share the plan. Part, I think the best way to do that is actually just to track the chronology of, of what of what happened. And I'll, I'm going to stick to the to the key events. So as I said, sort of 2008, 2009, SARS is flying. Then in 2010, March or thereabouts, if I'm correct, a man by the name of Vittorio Massone arrives in South Africa. And he takes the position of managing partner at Bain. And I think that was the key senior representative of Bain in in South Africa. One and a half to two years after Vittorio Masone's arrival, some strange things start to happen. I'll break that down into two two categories. The first is that Masone starts meeting with the president. Now, bear in mind that... Jacob Zuma. Mm -hmm. Yes, the former president. When that happens, that's now sort of mid-2012. And there are 17 meetings that happen over a period of two years. Now, bear in mind that when that happened, there was no contract in place between government and Bain. So what business did Masoni have meeting with the president? So that's the first strange thing that, that, that happens. Now, we, we to this day don't know in detail what was discussed in those meetings. All we have access to is some real documentary evidence in the form of emails where Masone happened to record some of the, the context of those conversations. The second strange thing that starts happening in the same time bracket, so we've got the president meeting with Masone 2012 to 2014, same time period 2012 to 2014-15, Bain starts drafting a whole lot of plans and documents. And again, remember, there's no contract, so they, they don't actually have a mandate to be doing this. Bain starts drafting a whole lot of documents and plans and strategies for the reform, and this is important, of the South African economy, all sectors of the South African economy, IT, infrastructure, energy, etc. 
So not only do these documents disclose plans to transform um, SOEs, state entities, but they want to transform the economy sector by sector. With what it looks like, the end goal being to centralize procurement. Okay. Now, that's an important point, and I just want to pause there for a minute, because we've seen how procurement gets used to facilitate state capture. I mean, that's what's come out of the Sondo Commission um, in, in no uncertain terms. Now, centralizing procurement is just firstly a daft idea, because it results in bottlenecks. Yeah, wait, wait, I've got to mm. stop you there. Pravin yeah. Gordon wanted to centralize procurement. Yeah. In fact, in his budget about four years ago, he drafted a 25 billion rand a year saving mm. by the centralization of procurement. And he even had a procurement czar appointed who subsequently went off to Standard Bank. Mm. And I remember at the time talking to some very wise people in business and they said that is a daft idea. Mm. And mm. I, I disagreed with them. Mm. Why do you think it is a daft idea? <laughs> All right. So, so look, procurement is, is, is complicated. And I definitely think that at the moment our procurement policies are, in a lot of, in, in, in a lot of areas, they are far too complicated. And that's also a problem because when they are too complicated and you have responsibility that's divested in or invested in too many functionaries, you actually land up in a situation where you can't track accountability because you don't know who's supposed to be accountable for, for what. I run up against this issue in, in cases where I'm dealing with um, with labor issues with ESCOM, for example, all the time. You're trying to work out who is actually supposed to be accountable. Um, and you can't because the procurement policies are so complicated. So I am an advocate for simplifying the procurement policies, and I do think that that our procurement legislation needs an overhaul. But centralizing is not a good idea because to vest something in a singular functionary is a problem because then all you've got to do is you've got to corrupt one person That's and it. the ship sails. <laughs> That's okay. exactly what the response was to me. Yeah. Are you mad? What happens if Zuma gets hold of this procurement budget? Pra- yeah. Pravin Gordon is being naive yeah. and indeed the way you've explained it. So just to get back to the whole Bain story. So this was part of the master plan. Yeah. Get all the government spending together. Then we are controlling the, the honeypot and we will then be able to allocate resources in an efficient way, according to our boss. It certainly looks like that. But here's the very disturbing part is that the other the other thing that's discussed in these documents that Bain was, was developing is something that they called an execution agency. Now, the execution agency, according to those documents, was a body that was going to sit outside of the executive, the executive obviously being the president and the cabinet. And who knows who they intended to sit on this execution agency, but it would basically be a body outside of government, outside of the executive, outside of oversight functions. Okay, so no one would be watching what what that body would be doing. And their role in consulting speak by Bain was supposed to be that they would deal with roadblocks to the implementation of this plan. In other words, if there was any resistance, this organization would deal with it in some way or another. Okay, and presumably would also be involved in the centralization of the procurement. So now not only have you got centralization plans, but you're taking what you want to centralize and you're taking it outside of government and oversight structures. And this is the plan that Bain took two years. No wonder they took two years to come up with it because it's masterful. And unfortunately, it worked. Enter Ethel Williams. Here's a Bain lifer. He's been with the 
company since 1997. He's put in by Bain to have a look at what's going on and to kind of rectify if there were any faults. And yet he scarpers because they don't listen to him. Look, let me first just say that I... I don't think I have respected anyone in many years the way I, I respect what Arthur Williams has done recently. We need to give that man a medal. And I think it's disgraceful that we have let him feel so unprotected that he's had to basically flee the country to to ensure you know the safety of, of his life. Bain has basically come back with some very, very bizarre explanation as to why uh, Athel Williams' testimony at the Zondo Commission should, should be ignored. But it doesn't make sense because Athel Williams' testimony was based on hard documents, documentary evidence, emails, performance reviews. You know, so it's not like this came out of thin air. There were also attempts made by Bain at the commission to to have Athel Williams' affidavit redacted, which I think they, they then withdrew. So this has really just been an exercise in, in obfuscation on Bain's part. Paul O'Sullivan used a very interesting example. He said you should try the Al Capone approach of trying to nail somebody on an absolute slam dunk rather than putting together hundreds of different charges. If you were the advocate for South Africa <laughs> in this case, how would you attack this? Where would you start? Where would the, the focus areas be? At this stage, I think I would just concede that at no point are you going to get Bain to fess up. We all hope that the regulatory authorities in the States are going to do their, their job as far as Bain is concerned. Why, why the, do you say that? Is it just too expensive for them to admit? I don't know. I don't work at Bain. But why but, would they do that? Surely KPMG is at least fessed up. Uh, so McKinsey sent their managing partner to South Africa, his first assignment after he'd been appointed, to say, we're really sorry with what happened. Mm. Why would Bain not do the right thing? Well, I don't know. It's either arrogance oh. or there are continuing vested interests. I really don't know. You know, for, for my lot, it's, it's not even good enough to have issued apologies. It's not good enough to pay back, you know, some of the money that you earn from some of your, your consulting endeavors. It's just quite simply not, not good enough. But here's what I would caution South Africa against if I was in that <laughs> in that very prestigious role. I would caution against getting lost in trying to get compensation out of these people, trying to chase them, trying to get people into jail. Because I think, and I could be wrong, that the power networks are so deeply entrenched that we'll be doing that into our graves. So the approach I would advocate for is try and look at the systems and the systems failures and the constitutional failures that allowed us to get here and rework those systems so that we don't land up in this position again. So I would take a slightly different approach. I would say, this is what's happened. We're going to get as much information as we possibly can. And we, instead of wasting all of our resources, I'm not saying we shouldn't, we shouldn't prosecute, but instead of spending all of our resources on that, spend a good portion of them on securing our institutions against having this happen again. And you see some of that starting to come through in the Zondo Commission's recommendations, where they're starting to look at, okay, well, how do we actually buffer up our institutions to protect, yeah, to protect ourselves? So that's the approach I'd take. You can't protect yourself against another Jacob Zuma. Who knows uh, if there's a junior Zuma waiting in the wings, there is, in fact. Duduzani <laughs> has got 
aspirations to become the next president following a similar line. How do you protect against that? Okay, so let me start by saying, firstly, I I think you'd be hard-pressed to find many politicians who do care about the Constitution. The Constitution politically seems to get thrown around as and when it's, it's convenient. In the same breath, I also caution against putting too much responsibility for state capture on the politicians. Yes, they are our elected representatives, okay, so fine, but what what the evidence coming out of the Zondo Commission is showing is that politicians are not the primary root cause um, of state capture. It seems as though they are a facilitator, but that the primary driving force is coming from elsewhere, entities like Bain. That's where the money is, that's where the power is, that's where we have to look. Now, as to your question about how do you protect against another Jacob Zuma, I think the question is slightly erroneous because I don't think we're actually trying to protect ourselves against our politicians. We're trying to conquer a deeper systemic issue in the society. And I'm quite a radical constitutional advocate in that sense because I believe that transparency is the key. The Constitution says that we have, a well, we should build a transparent and accountable state. We focus a lot on accountability, but not a lot on transparency. And to me, transparency and accountability are like a wave in the ocean. You can't separate the two. You cannot, in my mind, ever have proper accountability without transparency. So how do we protect against against a situation like this happening again? We pursue transparency relentlessly. We want cabinet minutes. We want details of loan agreements that you guys conclude. We want to know what the president's diary is. And we don't want to have to make some request and pay money to get this information. Other countries run on those lines? Well, no, but other countries don't have our constitution. Hi and welcome. My name is Michael Apple. I'm in conversation with Randolph Jorberg. He is the founder of the Hospitality Leadership Industry Action Group, joining me out of Germany. Mr. Jorberg, your reaction, firstly, to last week's stunt by the economic freedom fighters going to the cream restaurant, demanding to meet with the owner there to find out the proportion of local to foreign Uh, employee ratio. What's your reaction to that? Well, this probably shows again, you know, the political talent of uh, Julius Malema to listen to the people and uh, probably adding one and one. He understands uh, restaurants or the nightlife industry is in the spotlight. Um, There seems to be money to be made. uh, And, you know, with record tips to waitresses and uh, some clubs, you know, taking in millions of rands and misunderstanding the reality of the industry uh, that we are just busy recovering from the worst hit our industry has ever experienced, uh, well, (laughs) possibly in human history with lockdown, you know, nearly two years of reduced turnovers and the curfew just be having been scrapped, uh, you know, three weeks ago. Now he's seeing an issue that um, has been around for the last couple of years. The issue of foreign employ- employment ratios in 
our industry and probably, you know, elegantly wanders the path between xenophobia on the one side and, you know, uh, actual issue on the other side. So it's a very interesting situation he got us into. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. The let's say when the zen, when the xenophobic nature of your statements comes out and it finds a fertile soil with people, it's very often difficult to put the genie back in the bottle. You can't unscramble the egg. It is a very dangerous situation and very dangerous line to walk sometimes. And it is also strange to me considering the pan-African nature of the EFF prior to the elections and how that narrative has changed from the EFF now. But I wanted to ask you, what is the reality of the industry? A lot of people will know you as the founder of Beer House in Four Ways Johannesburg. What is the realistic ratio between foreign and local, or is it just simply too difficult to generalize? As with so many things in life, there isn't a single truth. You know, uh, every business has their own staff complement. I speak to restaurant owners that have a 100% South African uh, staff ratio, and I know of places that have probably 100% foreign owners. You know, um, some of the places itself are foreign-owned uh, by Zimbabweans, and uh, some places, uh, you know, like mine, are German-owned, and uh, but actually we don't have a single German employee. <laughs> there isn't a single truth. And the reality is that there is a lot of places that have a high foreign staff complement. Whether or not that is now due to a certain laziness by the owners, not wanting to train and skill up local staff, or, you know... If you ask these guys, uh, they will find other reasons why uh, maybe they have a majority foreign, you know, body of staff. What I find more interesting is to look, you know, at the examples of businesses that manage to upskill and train local staff, you know, that come from a, well, disadvantaged background and maybe also from a poor schooling background and uh, find out, you know, that actually if you put the work in and you train these kids, then you get an incredibly loyal and productive and motivated team out of it. In our group, in our action group, there's one fairly well-known person who talks about having 96% local staff. He does yearly audits on it in all of his stores. He says he really gets a huge sense of loyalty and uh, thankfulness from these guys. I believe as an industry, you know, we might need to acknowledge there is an issue we have and we fostered. And we might need to find ways to effectively train locals to, you know, make sure that we strengthen the local economy because whether or not the money... uh part of the money they earn is being transferred to the Eastern Cape or whether it's being transferred to Zimbabwe. In the bigger picture, it does make a difference, you know, to uh, our to our country. I wanted to ask about the reason why the hospitality industry is, at least from a perception point of view, so predominantly full of foreign nationals, whether they are illegal or legal. Is that just because it's a 
it's a, a low hanging fruit if you're in the country and you are a foreign national. I've, I've seen references to you can be an accountant, uh, from Zimbabwe who can't get a job in his own country. He's highly skilled. He speaks good English. And then there are business owners in South Africa in the hospitality industry who would see that as an asset. But you're saying, is there a problem with that way of thinking that you're having highly skilled people? There are certain stereotypes, you know, uh, foreign nationals speak better English, have better education. That's not always the case, but there are these stereotypes, are there not? These stereotypes do exist. And I would say, you know, South Africa as a nation needs qualified staff. And if there's a well-educated accountant coming with a legal work visa, uh, to South Africa, we should try to find him more work as a qualified accountant. And obviously that now speaks to bigger political issues that are not up to the hospitality industry to solve. Maybe the best use of a qualified accountant's time is not to wait tables at a restaurant. Maybe we should find ways to, to solve this issue because I know, you know, uh, there's businesses in South Africa that need accountants as well. Politicians getting involved in this? Is that the right way to go or this, should this be led by the Department of Home Affairs, by the Department of Labor? Is it a dangerous situation when you have politicians who may be making populist statements getting involved in this? Obviously, I mean, that was just the taste of things to come and it didn't take, uh, you know, four days and the Department of Home Affairs announced uh, a wave of uh, hospitality blitz or mega blitz actions, uh, at least for the Western Cape, which, you know, in my personal experience is something rather intimidating because suddenly uh, you got police and home affairs officers standing in your in your store demanding the documentation that right initially only the EFF demanded it's obviously you know it's a PR game when it came to Malema but it has ripple effects with the proper authorities so you know one of the industry bodies responded uh, Malema got no right and I mean there's no doubt I mean Malema got no right as a politician to go into any business and demand any kind of documentation. It was pure intimidation and a PR stunt. But uh, reality is that uh, the relevant bodies and uh, ministries are listening when someone like Malema speaks up and they do follow through, uh, even though he's not part of the official government. You know, as a shadow minister for everything he... <laughs> Things is interesting. Um, he obviously has a certain say, uh, though not official. And already, you know, when he first raised his word, I, I was telling in our industry group that, um, you know, we better be prepared for some, for some reaction. I believe, you know, there is a way to respond of re denying this conversation. And there is another way which I support, uh, um, or suggest following of an actual dialogue with people's needs and South Africans, South African needs, uh, foreigners needs and find uh, something that's sustainable for the industry and for the country. There isn't a solution to install quotas that is simply unrealistic because as I said, you know, some businesses have 100% local employment, other businesses might have a very low percentage. But um, we do need to find a common sense, a common ground where we say these are industry practices and practices born out of laziness might not be acceptable starting in two years time.
and giving businesses a fair chance to, you know, transform if necessary. You've been on the receiving end of some fraudulent and fake documentation in the past. As you say, the laziness, let's say a business owners not being committed to properly checking the documentation of their employees. Is that common? And you, you have been on the receiving end of this. That's correct. So when it comes to work visas, um, there is a lot of fake documents, copies, and similar circulating. And um, there is a serious issue that we experienced in the past, my business, Beer House, experienced in the past when trying to verify foreigners' work visas. Getting in contact with home affairs proved to be absolutely impossible. So, you know, sending someone's details or scan of a work visa, refugee visa, whatever, to home affairs resulted in exactly zero responses. Whether or not I sent it to personal contacts I had there, whether or not I sent it to the official visa validation email address, there is definitely an onus on home affairs to be more approachable about issues that are core to their you know, to the organization's purpose. If I as a business owner am not able to verify, you know, whether or not a visa of a foreigner is valid, what chances do I have to now be compliant? If, if it's made so difficult to be compliant, how, uh, what choices do I now have than to possibly be lazy and say, okay, uh, I will employ him hoping that this work visa that I see is true, you know, is correct one. I believe there might also be businesses that are lazy by default, but there's also something, you know, that stops businesses that would like to be compliant from being compliant. Would you be in support of a change in legislation to set up quotas or certain ratios of local to foreign employment across all sectors, including hospitality? Would you be in favor of something like that? It's... A complex one because no business owners likes regulation. Understanding the current legal situation is that uh, businesses, regardless of industry, are exempt from you know the uh, equity relations if they employ less than fifty or are under fourteen million rand turnover. So most restaurants probably fall comfortably below that bracket and only above that um, employment or turnover ratio you are forced to I think be in line with the local demographic for the region you are trading in. That is my vague understanding from having spoken to my labor lawyers. How practical is it for smaller businesses to now exactly model their demographics, their, their, their staff body body of staff to the local demographics should that threshold be lower maybe not 50 but 20 staff complement i don't know i do believe there is a certain uh, responsibility that business owners have and um I, that might be difficult for some business owners to swallow and understand and or accept for me it took a while as well and uh, to to accept you know there is responsibilities that as a business owners owner I have that go beyond my own pockets. And that might be difficult for many other business owners to 
you know, come to the same conclusion. Running a business can't be about the shortest way. It sometimes has to be about a, a difficult way, being the change you want to bear to be. The answer is a maybe. Thanks for speaking to us all the way from Germany. Thank you. Well, quite a show we've had for you this evening, the 25th of January. Look forward to being back in your company again. Same time, same place tomorrow. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.